Hey, man. Rough one today. Are we recording? Yeah, we're recording. Oh, cool. Yeah, you, it's a yeah, lo- long you, day. Long you day. You said you had a rough day, a long day. It's just a long day. Thursdays are long days. Yeah. And, you know, a lot going on. A lot of meetings, two classes. Really? I don't, I'm not complaining. I love it. I love it. What but were the it, meetings? Just meetings with students meeting, about meetings papers? Meetings about papers and things. Yeah. Yeah. A lot um, of that going on. Yeah. Yeah. Good good stuff. It's always great to, you know, to see what people are working on. But Of um, course. And we've um, just finished our conversation with Bernie Myler. Which, which was which was terrific. Yeah, no, it really was. I mean, I think I think you uh, carried the load on this one, Joe. Hmm, I don't know about that. But, I, um, I felt off my game, and and um, not that it's a game, but I just, <laughs> you know, tired, tired. But it was she was a delightful guest. I indeed. I wish I were the listeners right now. And you know, why I wish I were the listeners. Uh, no, because it's all in he- it's all ahead of them. For me, the conversation's <laughs> over. <laughs> <laughs> yes um it's the these two papers of hers that we talk about with her are really great and um and so we we'll link thank you darcy we'll link to those uh papers oh yeah and um we'll link it all up yeah and it's uh it's really great um and there's some walt whitman there's some other fun stuff there's all kinds of stuff yeah i agree so i agree this and, is gonna I, be great. And, I, and i thank you you i thank you for carrying the load hmm Mm-hmm. Um, speaking, speaking of which, do, uh, are you going to carry the load on today's follow-up? Well, um, let me see. There's, uh, is there, let me just ask, is there monkey selfie stuff in there? There is not, oh, sadly. Okay. Uh, oh, I got, I got one while you're looking that up. Do you want to, I had, I had a student come up to me in class today. You did? Said, Hey, I found your podcast. Listen to it on my commute. Love it. Hmm. And, and I'm, the, the, you know, the student, uh, didn't didn't uh, send feedback, so I, I'm not going to use um, his or her name uh, just yet. But I, but um, but listen, thanks. That, that you know, it kind of made my day. I really appreciated hearing that, and that's cool. And uh, you, this student should write in. Absolutely, yeah. and uh, we've got uh, an email address: oralargumentpodcast at gmail dot com. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail dot com. No funny business. And they can. Uh, We've got a Facebook page. They could they could go there if they wanted to or not. Yeah, you can send them. You can you can uh, um, post there. You can also uh, send a uh, send us an at reply on Twitter. We're oral argument on Twitter. Couldn't be easier. And we, you know, it's a low volume thing. I usually just tweet out. Um, I, I usually just tweet out the shows. Right. Uh, so you'll know what's on. Of course, if you're using a podcast app like you should be, it'll you're gonna uh, the the shows will just land in your inbox um, right. or in in your podcast app. Uh, but if you if you send us a message on Twitter, or you you at reply us on Twitter. We'll, you know, I usually reply back to that. So I, I use it for that too. But if you follow us, all you'll see are the the show cool. tweets and stuff. Yeah. Um, I can't be tired because I'm still I'm still um, I'm still living the Rocky Mountain High of Matthew Butterick as our guest last time. <laughs> I'm still I'm there's I'm still have did you so know much one bit of follow up from that did, or were you gonna did you did, do you have the Matthew Butterick follow up in there well uh, it's no no but I do I do know that it, you're talking about overcast right I'm talking about oh yeah we've been yeah. my and my mom my mom is you know is probably the biggest fan of the show cool <laughs> so shout out to listener mom um and <laughs> did she also I, uh why well, do you bring her up because got, of well, overcast some or? kind of issue you know there's always some issue with like the Think apps on the phone or things going on and and so she had some problem and mentions it and and i asked her what app she's using and of course she says i don't know what you're talking about i'm just just podcast i'm like there has to be an app there right mm. and uh and i think she's using the default podcast app on ios which is fine it's, you know it's not the best and 
And and I, I mentioned Overcast because I know Overcast. You guys mention it every time. <laughs> uh, but this time it's worth mentioning, right? Um, well, because it is a great app, but it ties into our show. It's, I, a, I harmonic, like it's a harmonic convergence. I feel like we're part of uh, Marco Arment's Overcast um, empire now. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. I, I feel like we're a part of this thing, Joe. But it turned out that... Because of what you're about to say. When Matthew Butterick had heard the episode and and he let us know that it was funny to him we were talking about overcast because the typeface used in overcast is in fact concourse a butterick typeface he made right. that typeface and i guess marco armit reached out and bought it and the rest is history yeah it's totally awesome yeah. so uh that's a great typeface um his other great one that i use a lot is called equity text mm-hmm. uh, so butterick typefaces are the bomb you should mm-hmm. go get one uh but uh, that wasn't really what was on my follow-up list. My, there was uh, there were really two things. Um, one was from listener Spencer, this very sad story about a savage attack on a lot of chickens. And but, I think he was... What, what was this attack? This doesn't sound good. Do we even want to include this in the show notes? Nobody wants to... It sounds like a downer, Joe. It is, it's a big downer. I think the reason that he mentioned it was simply that when we had talked to um, Matthew... Uh, Liebman yep. uh, at uh, Animal, Animal Legal, Legal Defense, Defense Fund. Fund. Yeah. We talked about Oregon against Nick's, the case about the fact that you would have, uh, you wouldn't merge the sentences for individual offenses. And I think if you apply that approach to this case, which had 900. Because, because each animal abused on a farm in that case was counted by the court as a separate victim. Correct. And so it raises this question about whether animals can be victims and, and, and the legal status right. of animals. And that's where that. And here there were from. 920 chickens right. who were beat to death with a golf club oh, apparently no. uh, yeah okay um so yeah uh, that would be a lot of uh they'd spend a lot a of lot time of in jail yeah um they don't know who the perpetrator was at least not in the what article state that, was this i don't re- i don't remember okay. i think it might have been california um, okay but the other one uh was it's actually it's from listener adam uh, he, who has emailed us many wonderful messages oh yeah this in, is a former student of mine right correct yep and he um, great email this week. I really love getting this one. Yeah, it was, and it was it was about you know sort of looking back at your life and thinking about alternative paths you could have chosen and how we wind up where we are and think you know roads not traveled. You being a mathematician, but mm-hmm. then switching to law. Um, you know, I actually was not originally you know after college I went to grad school in psychology, not mm-hmm. law. I then switched right. to law school because I realized I had made a, an error. Uh, so I feel like we should do another show on this. What was the, what was the specific question he asked? He wanted us to talk more about this. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and well, let me just read a little bit. Sure. Of, yeah, uh, what, uh, what was it about being a law professor that pulled you away from your alternative possibilities? Uh, were there important overlaps between law and those other things that made the decision easier? I just feel like it's something, you know, I mean, next week, we don't have a guest scheduled for next week. Next yeah. week, this should be one of the things yeah, we talk so about. Yeah, you, so you and I are just going to talk next week. And, and I think he's referring, I probably mentioned casually on one show about the, you know, my, I think 27 is a special age for people, at least in our culture. It's, right. It's... Or 29 uh, is the age he, he said, mentioned. He mentioned 29, but I think I'd mentioned 27. And, yeah. you know, there are lots of forks in the road that happen. Then there's something about appreciating your own mortality. There's something about appreciating the very finite nature of the number of paths that you can take in a single life. Um, and there's probably also stuff going on, you know, just biologically. And and um, and for me, you know, 27 was the age I started law school when I um, switched from mathematics and mm. finished my PhD and, and, and um, 
just had made the decision even before defending the PhD that I was definitely going to do this come hell or high water. And, um, I, I, maybe we should talk about this next week. Cause I, I do have some things to say about it. And then yeah. even in law school, I didn't know what I wanted to do for sure. I thought I wanted to do, um, uh, environmental law and work for an environmental organization. Like I had, um, before law school as a graduate student and kind of came to terms with my nature as an academic, um, over the course of law school. And then really in my clerkship, um, realized that this is, you know, what I wanted to do. And, and, and I, and I love it, but it's, uh, there, there's more to talk about here. Should we, yes. should we wait on that? You think? Yeah, let's wait on that. And I maybe think... we can get more feedback from people. So, right. uh, Good if, point. If, if over the next week, like you have some thoughts about how, uh, either you're on the fence about doing things and you're in a similar moment of like decision, I won't call it a crisis. Um, although that age also, um, uh, around that age, people can experience crises that they can at any time of life. But again, I think there's something about, about that time of life or if you've been through it and you either changed careers or you re- reoriented yourself within you know a single career that would be great to hear about because i think that's something we could we could talk about next yeah. week i also wanted to mention just something about my latest project next oh, week okay if you don't mind next week next you, week you say, yeah, 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 yeah yeah next week yeah i think that's a great idea yeah so one more thing joe we should say that um uh i'm sure due to no fault of her own or you know, it's probably it's probably just a stanford thing that tech out there isn't so great um but the, <laughs> uh, you'll notice that uh, several times during the uh during the discussion uh bernie's audio goes out a little bit but it comes back and yeah. you just have to kind of bear with it i'm going to do what i can in the editing but um right uh, we're aware of it apologies and uh, and you are a superhero of editing so and I mean that. Yeah. You do great things. With and the Bernie's, Bernie's great. She she did a really great job. Absolutely. Just, it, and and uh, somewhere between here, you're going to minimize though the, the the those sort of quirky sound things and and yeah. to the extent that you can. Yeah, you can't you can't repair a lot of that stuff. But right. but somewhere between here and Stanford, where the the um the 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 interwebs crapped out a little bit. And yeah. um, there was yeah, a there is was a network gremlin and is what it is. But um, exactly, the content's great. Absolutely. All right, we'll start the show now. Hello, Bernie. Hi, Christian. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastically. How are you doing? Very good. What have you been up to? Uh, you know, it's one of those days. Uh, I, 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 um, um, you know, I've, I've been writing, I've been reading, I've been teaching, that kind of stuff. But um, and then dealing with the family ailments and oh, this, yeah. this and that and the other. But uh, um, this morning I taught uh, Venice in my legal theory class. Oh, really? Yeah, and that was yeah. So I would say kind of challenging. You taught what? Venice. You know the legal philosopher. I don't know what natural word. law. I don't. Oh, Finis. Yeah, I did say Finis, didn't I? Sounds yeah. like sounds like you're saying a word that rhymes with tennis. Well, it sounded a little like Venice initially, but then I, I extrapolated that it was Finis. Am I? <laughs> so so even you were saying that you had to in, engage in some aggressive interpretation in order to. <laughs> Make make sense of what I was saying. Is that right? Well, you you did spend some time in Texas, didn't you? I think you picked up that Texas sort of E for I. Unfortunately, nope, nope. I, and I and I note the fact that you're denying it with a word that contains neither E's nor I's, which I which I think really confirms or at least a silent E. Okay. <laughs> I I don't know. I don't know. So are you you are um. We are we are reaching you in, in sunny. Um, what's what's the na- what's the um, adjective form of paradise? I was going to say uh, paradisical or something. Well, I don't know. 
Elysiac, maybe. Oh. I, I, unfortunately, the film Elysium came out just as I arrived here, and I kept thinking that something was going to happen to sort of destroy the paradise that is Stanford Law School after uh, that. But, um, I would hope yeah. not. I would hope not. <laughs> it is, it's a little too perfect, I, I have to say. Like, looking out of the window of the new building, it just seems a little too perfect. There's something a little creepy about it, but... Have you met Joe before? No, I don't think so. Have we met? No, I think it's just been emailing because and emailing a lot because I'm a twit and ruined the schedule. Oh, no, and I was a twit first, so we're both twitting. Yeah, no, no, I, I'll accept that you're both twits. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. No, um, and and so you know the other interesting thing is that Joe, um, it seems like every week pronounces our guests' names weirdly. Um, isn't that right? No. Yeah, like. I said Matthew Butterick. <laughs> like Matthew Butterick's name, I pronounced Matthew Butterick. Maybe it's just the Ethan Lieb episode where you insisted on live. Yeah, so, so one time. And I didn't insist on it. I said, not knowing him, not having met him, I suggest my guess was it was live, merely based on how it was spelt. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. But so anyway. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I, uh, but see, when he does this, Bernie, it makes me doubt my own sanity. Like, well, I do. You know, I've, I've met Ethan before. Could it possibly be Ethan Live? Maybe you know. Maybe I'm the heel. Maybe I'm the one who's been mispronouncing it. And so he why came. Why so up, judgy? Why do you have to make? Well, why do you have to find a villain in this, this tale? Is, well, there of course there has to be a villain, Joe. <laughs> I, I've been I've been teaching all day. I need a villain. Okay, I need a villain. Um, and uh, so so he comes over today and he says, um, uh, so how do you know Bernie Mailer? Mm. And and I and I'm thinking to myself, I it, of course it's Bernie Myler, um, but but do I have that wrong? Have I, have I gone nuts? Am I am I crazy? Like so so Bernie, can you um, can am I crazy? I verify that Myler is correct. I Excellent. Yes. All right. Uh, I welcome yeah. that. I defer to that. Of course, I accept that. I, I don't. I don't just accept it. You're, I, I have to say the mailer is the preferred mode of pronouncing it of those who have not been told it's mailer. So mm. you're both right in some ways. Well, in other words, Joe is correct if correct is measured by making the most common form of error. That's true. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or, or going with, rather going with majority opinion. So if we went with majority opinion, I would be mailer. That's, but instead, we're going with authorial intent, so I'm Myler. And I celebrate that. I don't just accept it. I celebrate it. <laughs> Bernie, uh, I have to tell you, he doesn't look like he's celebrating. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> now, now he looks like he's laughing. So I think all, all is good, and we should we should now move from the portion of the uh, podcast that our listeners skip over to the substantive part that other listeners skip over. Fantastic. Yeah, between our between all of our listeners, our entire podcast is skipped. Um, it is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you seems like a paradox. You're not going to please everybody. Paradox. You're not going to please everybody. True. Okay, so welcome. Yeah, Joe, tell us um, why why is Bernie on the program today? Uh, well, uh, you and I were chatting once about fun guests that we could have, and uh, came up that uh, you knew her and came up that there was this book forthcoming on common law originalism, and that, that sounded very interesting to me and to you. And so we thought, well, let's have her on and talk about that that project and that uh, set of ideas. Yeah, and, and Bernie, you've got, 
I, I just checked your, your page and you have not one, but you have two books forthcoming. That is true. H- how does that work exactly? Do you, you have like, you're writing well, two things at once? How does that even work? I, I was, I, I am writing two things at once in rapid alternation. It's not really at once. I don't have two laptops open with one on one screen and the other <laughs> on the other, but I have been uh, trying so you're, to- So you're not doing the full, like you're not doing a full Mark Lemley. Where you can exactly. like have one hand on one keyboard and one hand on the other and like tap out two articles at once. I do try to sneak by his office sometimes and witness how he's working so that I can be more productive like him. But uh, I haven't fully committed to that, you know. But so I'm I'm kind of working on it in rapid alternation, trying to complete chunks of each book. It turns out the other book is actually um, closer to being actually finished. Um, I'm just finishing up edits, and the common law originalism still has two chapters that are um, that are in process. Well, we can talk about whatever you want, but I, you know, I read the um, the Stanford Law Review piece. The, you know, the the I I take that that's the germ for the yes, common law originalism book, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. but I'm happy to hear about the other one as well, but. Um, I just thought it was really interesting. One, because, you know, we have a um, a lot of our listeners are, are in law school. Some are, are have never been to law school, and you know, um, aren't lawyers. Some are lawyers. So we have a, a kind of a wide array of people. And, and I thought your article is a really cool way just to think about what the common law is and what it has been. And to think about, you know, the big constitutional questions that people are asking today um, and how interpretation works and in particular how interpretation which appears to call for kind of common law sources uh works um how did you get first of all do i you know am i right to be interested in it in that way and 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 secondly how did you get interested in this particular debate which i assume is what that interest is what led you to create this new theory of common law originalism I was teaching both constitutional law and a class on the history of the common law. And suddenly it struck me that they weren't really so different as classes, even though uh, one seemed to be about this fixed document that has this uh, venerable genesis in American history. And the other was about this tradition that's always being called unwritten, even though, of course, there are lots of decisions and treatises and other things that actually uh, record what the common law is in various contexts. Um, so I, I, while I was teaching both of those classes, I started realizing that a lot of the interpretive methods that I saw appearing within the constitutional law context were actually quite analogous to interpretive methods that we were talking about in the class on the history of the common law. Um, but then also I found there to be some incongruities in terms of the way in which I saw originalist justices treating the sources from the time of the founding. Um, And that led me to feel like there were some problems with the way in which the current court um, was treating the common law backdrop of the Constitution. So to kind of back up, I think that uh, it's pretty accepted um, among a lot of the members of the court that uh, if you're going to look at or use originalism as a method of interpretation, that there are a number of clauses in the Constitution, um, like the Confrontation Clause, like other um, provisions of the Bill of Rights, but also things like um, habeas corpus, um, the Suspension Clause, that you look at 
the common law backdrop of the Constitution to flesh out the meaning of those phrases or terms in the Constitution. Now, often uh, I noticed um, the justices were really looking mostly at Blackstone, who wrote uh, kind of right before the founding moment and ratification of the Constitution, rather than looking um, at the longer history of common law or at the potential divergences between colonial and British common law. So I I was interested in how, in fact, you know, once you look at in more detail at the reception of the common law within the 17th and 18th century in America, there's actually a whole bunch of divergent strands of common law that uh, wind up emerging um, and that um, are not entirely reconciled with the British common law of the moment. Yeah, so it's one thing that's interesting here that I think um, uh, most of our listeners will know about, but a surprising number probably don't have a a great grasp of just because we live in such an age of statutes uh, is exactly, you know, just what the common law is and and therefore what role someone like Blackstone or Hale or these other, you know, whether they're kind of early restatement writers in a way or or something else, like what, what is their role? And then how does the common law um, uh, affect constitutional interpretation and what was its role in the, in the founding era? Um, so just to go back to the common law, um, you know, I, it's, 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 um, it's still true today that a lot of what you think of as the law or what people think of as the law is made by judges um, and that you can find no statutory source um, except for possibly statutes that um, that create judicial bodies. Uh, so you don't, you know, there's no, in a lot of states, there's no um, statutory uh, law of accidents. Um, there may be bits and pieces that affect the law of accidents, but, you know, if someone is negligent on the road and injures you, you're right to sue them and recover for that uh, in, in many states. And, and, and uh, you know, a while back in, in every state um, was basically a, a creature of judge-made law. And, um, and that's still with us today. And I guess that's the, um, uh, uh, you know, that was, yeah, I'm trying to think back to the piece of yours, which I read. It, it, it clearly was dominant in England and dominant in the early colonial period, um, even though there were statutes. And you kind of talk about the relation between early statutes and constitution-like things, like even the Magna Carta. Um, but it's, it's even more distinctions than that, right? Because yeah. you've got, you know, there's common law versus equity. So there's, mm-hmm. it's not just decisional law, but it's different branches of decisional law uh, within a system that at that time uh, distinguished among those things. Then you've got uh, fights at the time. I mean, what I think is so great about the Stanford piece is that it sort of takes seriously the notion that you would go back and try to unpack all this stuff and say, well, you know, looking back at that time, you've got people fighting about I mean, there are these great passages from Jefferson's letters that you've got about how, well, if it's, you know, from after the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, George the third ascending to the throne, it's a bunch of junk. Or, um, <laughs> if it's, uh, you know, if it's from that guy Mansfield, forget it. Uh, well, a central dispute that you, that you touch on here, and I want to make sure we get out in order to just make progress and, and so that people can, um, be up to date on where you are. Uh, is is whether um, judges in the making of common law, or, or in uh, or in the announcement of common law, are, are doing just that? Are they making it, or are they discovering it? Right, and um, uh, the 
the view that you ascribe to some originalists is that before uh, the rise of legal realism in the early part of the 20th century, maybe even late part of the 19th century, um, the common law was this very static body that judges found and applied and that someone like Blackstone is uh, Blackstone and maybe a few other uh, commenters were just restating what that body of law was. And in that way, you know, maybe Blackstone is like an early restatement of the common law. Um, and, and, and I take it one of the things that your piece does as a matter of history is to say that that is incorrect and that the common law was, uh, in the early, in, in the 19th century and, uh, I'm sorry, in the 18th century and even 17th century was an evolving body that was contested, um, and self-consciously evolving. That's right. And the judges were self-conscious about that evolution, even if people still had the same um, debate, which is what I want to come back to, but you know, people are having the same debate then that they are now about this. Um, do I have that basically right, Bernie? Or? Definitely, yes. And so, I mean, one way in which to see it is that I, there's this notion that at some point in time, the common law wasn't simply judge-made law as uh, we're talking about, but was some notion of a kind of common custom, right? So that there, the judges were just uh, kind of reaching into the ether to... Uh, unearth this common custom or to uh, pull down this common custom and uh, concretize it in a particular case. Now, at least from the 17th century onwards, that isn't really what they're doing. And, and someone who I see as a central figure in this evolution is Sir Edward Cook, who had a lot of different roles um, in the early 17th century. He had been a, uh, he, he was a justice of various courts, um, but he also then became a parliamentarian, um, and he was also an attorney general um, prior to even being a judge. And his uh, reports are often um, taken as one of the kind of earliest uh, formative moments of a modern common law tradition. Um, and he has uh, a number of volumes of reports. These weren't, uh, you know, today we have reports of what the Supreme Court has done, and they issue the slip opinions a day or two after uh, they are read from the bench. Whereas at that point, uh, he would only publish these volumes intermittently, and the first few volumes were reports of important cases that he had decided quite a bit before. Um, and there were also conflicting reports of those cases. So I think one thing to keep in mind is that um, law reporting um, in and of itself has this interesting kind of relation to the tradition of judge-made law and of common law, where uh, who is doing the reporting and what vantage point they're reporting often has some impact. So, uh, for example, in an early case, uh, Calvin's case, which establishes the notion of uh, birthright subjecthood uh, in England uh, in the early 17th century, there's both a report by Cook and a report by Lord Chancellor Ellesmere, which are somewhat different reports, and they have different accounts of the reasoning of the case. Um, so I think from looking at um, the sequence of Cook's reports, and especially the prefatory material for the various volumes, you can really see the ways in which he's um, articulating a philosophy of judging, and also emphasizing that, um, you know, reports are malleable. They're not um, necessarily quite a faithful account of a case. Uh, one of the uh, important legal historians of the 20th century, um, Milsom, 
I wrote a piece about uh, this case that Cook decided on Bonham's case, which is often taken as a precedent for judicial review. It's extremely complicated, so I won't go into the details of the case. But um, if you look at the case in detail and you look at the sources it's citing, it actually purports to quote from earlier cases, but adds the relevant language of the holding uh, to those cases um, as though it had been in those earlier cases. But in fact, it wasn't in those earlier cases. So mm-hmm. there's this um, act, I think, of self-consciously constructing the common law, even at this moment when Cook is writing, um, as well as uh, later within the later 17th and 18th centuries, that way precedes legal realism. So uh, part of the point of that I'm trying to make is that, you know, this notion of uh, judges as activists um, is, and, and is originating only with legal realism, is kind of a falsification of the tradition of common law interpretation, um, but it's also not as big a problem as originalists often make it out to be. That a lot of the impetus behind um, originalism in its uh, form, as articulated by Scalia, say in the 90s, is this notion that somehow originalism is going to constrain these unruly judges. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, as I've been working on this book project, um, part of what has occurred to me as kind of at the core of it is that to me, it seems like the problem of constraining judges, the counter-majoritarian difficulty is kind of a false problem, um, and that it's constructed by the ways in which um, originalists frame the question in the first place. Well, is it, you say it's a false problem, but um, it's a, you're saying it's a false problem from, from your from your perspective. I mean, it sounds right. like from right. their perspective, what they're saying is the reason why um, uh, originalism is good is because it constrains and the central role of the common law as we understand it, they would say, um, is that it can constitute this constraining force. They're arguing from that vantage point, which I think some originalists have now abandoned um, or at least called it to question, is that um, you need something to constrain judges within a democratic system because uh, judges who are invalidating legislation on a constitutional basis are contravening the will of democratically elected majorities. And therefore, um, because they are unelected officials, um, they should not be exercising outsized power in that role. Now, originalism from that vantage point um, serves as a constraint because it says, well, we can look for the original meaning of the Constitution, which is uh, democratically legitimate because it was ratified by um, this greater body of the people, by we the people um, through this constitutional moment, rather than um, simply being the will of a transient majority. Um, So we can look to this and that itself has a democratic foundation. And we look to the Constitution but we have to interpret it as it was meant at the time of the founding, because that's the only democratically legitimate way of interpreting it. Now, that turns out not to be as much of a constraint on judges as I think the original originalists uh, posited because of the wide variability of meanings of the Constitution or constitutional clauses at the time of the founding. So, And that's um, irrespective of the of the common law problem. I mean, that's true of... Of, of of any passage of the Constitution, if you want to apply originalist method, and uh, e- even if you 
for whatever reason, don't think that common law understandings in, inform the uh, the meaning of the text. I mean, uh, so for someone like Scalia, who I think is still an original public meaning originalist, in other words, he thinks that the mm-hmm. Constitution should be interpreted um, it, uh, to mean what it would have meant to the audience for that constitutional provision at the time it was passed. I mean, this is what I mean, it, most of these interpretive theories are trying to confer legitimacy on, as you say, this unelected body of the court in making these decisions. And so if the court can say uh, through a particular interpretive method, you know, we are we are not supplying the political answer to this question, but are channeling someone else's political answer, then that kind of does the job. And for Scalia, because uh, democracy is kind of the um, uh, the root good um, in in our system of government for from his vantage point, um, he's channeling the the very he's he's channeling the very kind of democratic moment that made that text kind of authoritative and that's the the receipt by the people of the language drafted by their agents right and so for him uh you know what people thought cruel and unusual punishment meant uh at the time those words were uh were, were adopted is what those words mean and uh so i'm i'm actually kind of curious about how the the how the common law meaning of terms is relevant under that um uh, under that theory if i have his theory roughly correct so um i don't know if cruel and unusual punishments has a um ha- has a common law basis as some of the other examples that you um that you cite in your work whether it's uh yeah well i um, some uh, examples are um the pardon power in Article two, um, what it means for the president to pardon, um, or also uh, the citizenship clause, either the natural born citizen clause um, uh, for the president, or um, the citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment, um, or the distinction between um, law and equity in the Mm -hmm. 7th Amendment um, for the purposes of civil proceedings. Right. Um, And felonies, too, right? And yeah, yeah, some other. other, So, ex post facto clause, I I assume, has. Mm Right, exactly. Yeah. Like Calder against Bulls, wasn't that the case where they say, you know, it has these accepted meanings and da 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 da? So. So if our job, so let me just put the question back again. I mean, if if I take Scalia's, if I if I start with Scalia's starting point, um, and I I think that all such starting points are basically ungrounded, um, but I'll leave that to one side for a second. So I'll start with his starting point that as a non-elected um, uh, institution within a system of government for which democracy is the overriding and controlling principle, my job is to channel. Um, is to channel the political um, uh, decisions of, of basically other institutions, and here the institution I'm channeling is the uh, is the um, the framing body, the body of, of framers and the adopters, um, and depending on how you disaggregate all that. Uh, and so, what I'm concerned with, in particular, because of, of the way that he sees democracy, and consistent with even his textual interpretation of statutes, um, is that I should interpret it as the 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 direct agents at that time would have received that text. Uh, so however, uh, um, however the people receiving, um, however the people, um, would have accepted those provisions and, and whatever meanings they would have thought they had should control. But if the people themselves were not steeped in the common law, but this was still kind of a, a lawyer priesthood tradition of reading Blackstone and everything, um, aren't, aren't those two theories kind of at odds that we should give controlling weight to historically derived 
common law meaning, even setting to one side for a second, you know, your theory that there is no one historically derived common law meaning, but that there are there are many and they are in competition. But but even if there were one, um, isn't that isn't that theory? You're shaking your head, Joe. But isn't that theory at odds, though? I mean, um, because unless you think the people knew about the common law. Yeah. So one. uh, okay. so one, I think, helpful uh, addition here is in Larry Solom's work um, where he talks about. Um, the delegation of um, expert interpretation. I, I think it's um, quite plausible if you are going down the original public meaning route, um, then you might think, well, people probably recognized these terms as, in fact, um, terms, specialized terms of the common law that then would be interpreted under the uh, specialized meanings of the common law and that they would be given um, legal interpretations um, rather than uh, interpretations of common parlance um, precisely because they were um, recognizable as legal terms. Now, I think, you know, you could see um, like the debates at the uh, on the Constitution as sort of supporting this when uh, there's a discussion about um, Congress uh, defining and punishing felonies uh, on the seas, that uh, the discussion around that um, basically says, well, you know, some of of the people say, well, you know, what is a felony? Uh, There are different understandings of felony um, in these different contexts. Um, We have to, uh, if if we want to have some coherent notion, we have to give Congress the authority to define what a felony is, as well as to punish it. Otherwise, we're going to have too many controversies about what constitutes a felony or not. Um, so I think that uh, there is a sense in which there there can be this kind of delegation um, of authority to understand or to determine specialized meanings. But then I, if you assume that as a kind of backdrop, there still then is this problem where I people, representatives from different states or uh, delegates from different states or those voting on the Constitution from different states would have had um, different understandings of what that backdrop common law meaning would be depending on their particular locations. Well, you know, maybe that would be, yeah, and that that gets into your your major critique of kind of the unitary understanding of the common law, that because there are many and because there are many, uh, a theory which relies on the idea of finding a unitary meaning in the common law is essentially opening the judge up to having a choice, having a political choice to make, because you can choose among um, different meanings. So if you went to the common law as a way to get to determinacy, once you accept this critique, you'll realize, oops, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, it doesn't actually I'll, get me determinacy. I'll go to Blackstone for this. I'll go to early colonial practice for that. I'll go to... Um, pre-colonial practice for this and i can find you know the answers are always there it's kind of it's kind of what you learn when you're uh reading through briefs as a clerk or 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 uh, (laughs) or doing cases right it's like if you you can kind of figure out what the law should be and you can always find that you know you can you can always find it in the cases what you think that the law should be it doesn't necessarily make it the right answer you know there's still constraints but um it's not a totally unconstrained process to figure out the law under just about any method but but i still wonder though if it's um maybe this is a better question for for larry as to what the what the constraining mechanism is because if the theory is is again is is democracy and i'm channeling the political decisions of others um 
then it seems to me democratic accountability is a huge part. You're going to channel a democratically accountable institution. But if part of your theory is that that institution can adopt terms of art and people are delegating kind of expert decision making uh, to the where, where that expert decision making consists in using terms of art that have meanings which would be accessible to people, but for the fact that they are cloaked in terms of art, it seems to short circuit the whole process. Um, I don't know if I've said that well, but but it seems like um, that if our project is to ensure democratic accountability and that dem- and democra- and the acts of democratically accountable bodies are are, are the main vehicles for, and maybe the only vehicles for true policy making uh, in 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 the nation, then you know what I mean. I mean to to, to, to yeah. Say- I, 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 yeah, I think that's a really um, interesting point. And so, I mean, one way I would sort of cash that out is to say, well. People always recognized the role of judges and lawyers in terms of uh, solidifying this kind of specialized body of legal knowledge and of knowledge of rights. So that actually by including these kind of common law terms or, you know, if originalists are going to look at these common law terms, in a sense, it's an acknowledgement that, uh, you know, judge made law or parts of the common law are in fact um, essential, though they might not be democratically created or democratically accountable. So that already, it's sort of an acknowledgement within the constitutional text of this um, sort of specialized delegation of authority to the courts and specialized knowledge that the courts could be promoting going forward. Yeah, and, but, and then that seems like a trap because once once you say that that is the case, then the natural question is, why delegate to that non? Why delegate to the non-democratic body to make those choices at time t minus one hundred years rather than t now? You know what I mean? I mean, so so. If well, the- I think you're you're creating a you might be creating a standard, or one could say you're creating a standard of perfection of everyone's comprehension. Maybe that just exposes the, the democratic moment as a fiction, but but. I think to the the other phrase I think Solomon uses and 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 Bernie this is your your Fordham paper um accepting contested meanings mm-hmm. goes into this linguistic division of labor uh and you you quote the solemn example about you know the Massachusetts farmer who doesn't know what the phrase letters of mark and reprisal means because he's not in the navy mm-hmm. like could go <laughs> ask his navy friend right. and you know maybe his navy friend doesn't know something about um the division of powers between executives and legislatures because he's from Maine and he's just gone to town meetings his whole life. He doesn't understand what all this fancy separation of power stuff is. So he could ask his other friend. I mean, you've this notion that citizens could talk to each other. Some of them will know what some of the things mean. Some of them will know what others of the things mean. And, and they have enough time to deliberate before they vote, uh, sort of washes out all these vagaries by by summing it over, sort of aggregating it over all of that approval that's expressed by a large number of folks. So, you know, maybe, as I say, maybe that means it's a fiction. Maybe that means it's an effective mechanism for smoothing the rough edges off as you aggregate yeah. over those preferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not sure which, but... Well, and, well, maybe maybe we can get... I want to get to Bernie's theory. And, and so if it's, let's just accept then that there's something special about that moment, the moment of enactment, um, that should carry some special weight. And for whatever, maybe it's the reason that you, maybe it's the reason you give Joe and that Bernie, you gave in the Ford and peace and that, and that 
and that Larry's given in, in a number of pieces. Uh, but let's just assume there's some special weight. Are, are you irritated with me, Joe? You no. Like, okay. It'll be okay. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't be the first one today. <laughs> I, I think I'm an irritating person today. I don't know what it is. It doesn't I, seem that way. I'm off my game, Bernie. I feel like I'm off I my game. I feel that way. Well, <laughs> well, that's kind of you to say. That's kind of you to say. Well, but I, I, we're going to get back on it here, though. And <laughs> to get back on it, I so I just to distinguish. So you you do in fact think that um, uh, that there is something special about that that moment of enactment, and it contains some and it paying some extra attention to it has. Um, uh, a salutary kind of, um, if not democratic effect, so it, it's it's a it's a desirable feature of a of a self governing republic to pay some special att- attention to the moments of enactment and maybe especially constitutional text or maybe constitutional text plus statutory text. But you want to do it in a different way, and so for Scalia, um, who you use as the main foil, I don't know if you do that in the book as well, but in the in the in the article you certainly do. Uh, for him. Uh, constitutional text that uses terms that, which are loaded with common law meaning, right, are an invitation to look for what he s- believes is the unitary constitutional meaning of those terms, mm-hmm. and and that that and, and that that meaning, which you discover from what he had characterized as the very as a very stable body of common law in the um, in in the 18th century and, and um, 17th century, uh, supplies the rule of decision. And therefore constrains him and should constrain his colleagues. And and I take it your your view is very very different because you don't see the common law as at all unitary. You see it as having a remarkable continuity with the con- with the common law of today. If not, you know, it's not identical, but you see a lot of continuity. And therefore, the process of paying attention to original meaning as having kind of a it, it's it's not at all like it, it's it, in one sense it's not at all like living constitutionalism because um, interpretation as I take your meaning is, is not about giving a judge a license to think about what's best mm-hmm. uh, in a common law methodology, um, but a chance to use history to explore contested meanings and choose among them wisely in a way that matches up with our needs today. Um, is that about right? Yes, that's definitely right. And I guess I, the, the emphasis is also on a different vision of democracy than the one that's um, promulgated by an originalist theory. Um, in Under the originalist view, um, there's sort of a majority vote or a supermajority vote, and that determines what the democratic view is. Whereas I want to see the Constitution as something, a document that's democratically promulgated that is, in fact, very important for democracy, but that represents the kind of continually unfolding contestation of our country, right? And so that there may be different debates to some extent going on today than were happening at the time of the founding, but that the Constitution doesn't simply represent some form of unanimous proclamation by the people, but rather is an archive of these kind of contested strands that come together um, in this document. So and I want to see how um, judges might be able to unpack the kind of continued nature of that contestation today by looking back at 
um, the different meanings um, that might underlie these common law constitutional provisions in order to um, figure out which one would be best suited to um, applying in the contemporary context. Do I have it right that the description you just gave of the Constitution, its role, not as like um, the instructions contained in a game of Monopoly, but a set of principles which allow the players to uh, evolve the game over time. Uh, it, it, maybe I have that wrong, but but if that's roughly the view you have, that that seems also to be the description that you have of the common law itself. Yes, yeah. So I think to me, there's a lot more continuity than difference between the pre-constitutional Anglo-American system of law and what happens when the Constitution is ratified. That. Um, there isn't really this kind of intense break from uh, the prior uh, moment um, through simply the ratification of a written constitution, but actually the written constitution is uh, sort of taking hold um, in this moment, uh, kind of coming out of that Anglo-American tradition, obviously resisting some aspects of it, modifying some aspects, but then also really continuing um, a lot of the uh, pre-existing tradition. What seems odd to me about this uh, approach, uh, as we're describing it now, and I, that I didn't fully appreciate as I was reading the two papers, is that it, it, it seems to me in a way to really problematize the writtenness of the document. Like, why write it? If it on, this, on this approach, which to me sounds very English, uh, and uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I mean in an historical way, right? There's a, there's sort of the unwritten constant, the unwrittenness of the Constitution is in the British experience part of its strength and resiliency. Um, and so, why w- what what this approach, your approach, or as Christian or, or Christian's version of it, what it, it problematizes writing the darn thing down? Like, why do that? It's not a good idea. <laughs> so I think. There are a lot of reasons to write it down. I just have to give a brief anecdote because I was just last year at this conference on populism and constitutions that was organized by uh, a group at Oxford, and it was half British and half kind of American-influenced uh, con law people. And there was this huge conflict about the importance of writtenness. And, uh, you know, Akhil Amar was talking about the amazingness of the fact that our Constitution is written, and then the Oxford people were, you know, vehemently disagreeing. And anyway, so I, I think you're right that there is this uh, divide between the English and American sides in terms of, you know, what weight to place upon um, the writtenness of the Constitution. Now, so did so, you like, did you toss the table up and, and go to, and go away from Amar at that conference? Did you just, did you go sit with the British people? <laughs> <laughs> or did you say, no, 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 I, 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 I think, I think there's genius in writtenness. I was sitting between them, actually. <laughs> oh, it seems like the perfect place um, for you, actually. Yeah. The fulcrum point. Yeah. Right. I, so I, I guess, my, I, you know, I wrote this other strange piece uh, after the common law originalism piece that was trying for myself to think about um, the importance, you know, why we do have a written constitution, what's at stake um, in writtenness. And it was doing it through a kind of law and literature angle. It's on uh, Daniel Defoe and the written constitution of all people. Um, you, you actually but, delivered that paper at Georgia. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so and that is kind of a 
you know, I'd, I'd want to do maybe at some point a fuller take on this. But I, to me, I think that some of the reasons that Defoe articulates for having written this um, are compelling within the American context in particular. So um, one reason um, has to do with the context of kind of emerging literacy and also the rise of a larger um, nation and, you know, more far-flung populace. So um, that has to do with the effect of the Constitution um, as written in terms of its promulgation, right? So once you have a written constitution, everyone can carry around um, their pocket constitutions and whip them out when they need to and make sure that uh, they can refer to it. And, you know, I, I think even today that's a useful phenomenon. I mean, I think it can be used uh, problematically by people who aren't really aware of the context of the constitution. If you, you know, pull out the Bible and you don't really, uh, you know, haven't haven't studied some of the context, you might have an odd interpretation of a uh, a, a phrase. But um, at the same time, I think it is really valuable to uh, enable people to have a kind of concrete text that they can then discuss with each other. Um, that uh, is part of the defining. Uh, aspect of the polity. Now to, now, now, to be clear, though, Bernie, I mean, you teach constitutional law, and it's my understanding that when you teach constitutional law, you were issued a pocket constitution that you have to carry around with you at all times. Well, <laughs> That's been my experience with common well, law profs. I have, I have a number. Some of them are, are better than others. But yeah. uh, yes, I have, I have a whole little drawer full of pocket constitutions. That but it's interesting, to- though, because, you, you know, this whole, I mean, in a, so a few things I've been thinking as we've been talking, like one, one is, I feel like um, you, your constitution, it, like Walt Whitman uh, says of it of itself, I contain multitudes, right? That, That's that right. Um, mm-hmm. the phrases that are there, even though they're fr- and so another thing one could reference is the the Holmes uh, comment about words being the living skins of ideas. Uh, that there's the, there's something highly multivariable within even a a word or a phrase and you don't want to lose that you want to carry that along with the writtenness of the thing um you don't want it to lose its character as as containing multitudes and i think i mean well one practical thing it seems to me that in that respect the the difficulty of the amendment process in in article five strikes me as really quite a colossal blunder, um, that it really should be much more amendable uh, if people appreciated then what we appreciate now in, in the conversation we're having about its multivariable uh, quality. Um, but the other thing I think it, it means that's maybe a little less practical is just the the kind of um, the the spirit that that calls for where the the document is the beginning of a conversation and never the end of a conversation um mm-hmm. is 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 in some tension with the idea that the a good reason for writtenness is that it's a coordinating mechanism i mean your story is essentially your story about why write it down is well, it's a nice coordinating mechanism. We could take it out and look at it. We can remember what we said. Here it is. It's it's also a reason to keep it short instead of being long. Uh, and so that's all good, but that's in tension with um, the idea that you're going to constantly allow it to be it's it's like a bag of wriggling things. It's not it's not a calm piece of paper. <laughs> and uh, I think there's some tensions there. Yeah, I mean, I I see 
less of attention in terms of um, the coordinate, coordinating mechanism versus there continually being new conflicts that arise. Because I think, you know, if we think about statutes, for example, right, often uh, the way in which Congress comes up with statutes, there are a lot of compromises. There are a lot of things that uh, aren't fully fleshed out because they are compromise provisions. Why imagine that Congress is ceasing at the time when the statute is passed? I mean, so Congress definitely is ceasing at the time that the statute is passed. But to me, it seems like we could imagine a Congress that would kind of pass the statute, but then keep, you know, debating over the provision. So if we imagined uh, Congress staying on and then uh, adjudicating cases um, based on those uh, statutes, then we might have something similar to the way in which I'm thinking about the people being able to continually um, revisit these clauses of the Constitution and uh, think about the conflicts contained within them, that it's not sort of set in stone at a particular moment. Um, you know, we're like a continuing um, legislative body or, you know, a continuing governing body that um, has to return to the controversies every once in a while. Now, I do agree with you that um, the amendment process is problematic. Certainly, as we all know, um, Jefferson, you know, thought that the Constitution would be renewed every generation. A lot of the founders, I think, would have been um, very surprised to find that uh, or shocked to find that the Constitution had endured this long without significantly more amendments. And I do think that that has has some negative um, implications for the ability to kind of change things regularly enough and also um, even for the ability to change the spirit behind the Constitution. So, you know, I, one one way in which I think um, there is a problem in this respect is that, uh, you know, our Constitution really is a Constitution. Of, oh, no, it's Darcy, uh, Christian's dog, and she's expressing some excitement and maybe a little anxiety. No, Meredith's oh, home. No, my wife on the Constitution amendment. <laughs> my wife just drove up, so that's what this is about. Yeah. Sorry, uh, Bernie. And so, I mean, to me, one of the things that is particularly problematic about not only the amendment process but the endurance of the Constitution is that you know we really do have still an 18th century constitution that um the kinds of rights that are protected um are these you know rights to be free of various forms of government intervention um social rights and economic rights aren't protected there aren't aren't the same kinds of um provisions for environmental rights as a lot of um you know more recent constitutions uh, might think about. So, you know, these second and third generation rights are not present, nor, um, you know, I think under certain constructions of the commerce power, or other powers of Congress, um, can they kind of be inserted in a statutory manner? So I think that really winds up constraining um, certain aspects of our political system in undesirable ways. So that, you know, I think you know, I'm I'm not fully with Sandy Levinson that we should have a new constitutional convention, but I do think that having more opportunities for rethinking certain um, of the core aspects of the Constitution more regularly would be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's nice that we've got a document that mainly contains principles rather than 
random, you know, like a lot of state constitutions, mm-hmm. which are just catalogs of weird kinds of rights that are, you know, the cause de, de jour. Uh, so that's kind of nice, but let's just, you know, face it, the constitution's kind of screwed up. I mean, it's just miscalibrated when it comes to amendments. I mean, the, the, the major amendments that we associate with being an American, the right to be treated equally, right. Mm-hmm. That, that everybody gets to vote. Um, we had to fight a civil war to get that stuff in there. Right. And it never would have passed if you, if, uh, if some States weren't basically required at the, at gunpoint to, um, to ratify, uh, to, to ratify those. Exactly. So, um, that's, you know, and that's just one of the ways the constitution is not perfect and it would be, it'd be better if we saw it as not perfect. But on the other hand, it, it's great that the constitution mainly contains these, uh, these principles, which are at least somewhat, uh, malleable. Now, the other thing that I, that I would, that I wanted to say was that, um, uh, to me, it's not at all a surprise that the, People who fought a war with England and wrote a Declaration of Independence decided to write down a constitution, right? I, I think mm-hmm. in, in two respects. I mean, one, when you don't have the um, the legacy of a king and and all that comes with royalty, you need something that to to legitimate your exercise of power over other people, right? And and so distinguishing your government as one, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but it's cliche because it's true uh, as a, as a government of laws, right. And not people. Um, and instead of finding, um, the investiture of the King with power by, directly by God, it's the law by power from God, right. There's all the natural rights talk in the early, uh, in the declaration of independence mm-hmm. and in the constitution has that language of like divine right, but it's the divine right to rule, uh, by the law. So to me, just as an explanatory well, that, descriptive I think thing, that's true of the Declaration. It's not. I don't think that's true of the Constitution. It's we the people. I mean, it's the Constitution yeah. is a popular sovereignty exercise, not a not a natural law exercise, isn't it? Well, I, I mean, we're not going to. I don't know. If the only thing, the, the, only thing natu- the Constitution says about God is that there shall be no religious test. So the one time it brings the subject up, it's to deny its force, right? I, and I'm, 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 look, I'm not claiming that it is a um, uh, that it was meant to be. Um, far from it that it that it it was meant to to ground its rights in in any particular religious practice, but you know the natural rights foundation of the Constitution is kind of to me undeniable. I mean that was in the air at the time. I mean, uh, but you know that aside, I, I'm just getting, whether it should be interpreted that way is a completely separate question. And the way that people ignore the reframing of the Constitution in the Civil War is even more baffling. But, um, you <laughs> we know, agree but, about that. Right. But, but, um, um, but I think as, just as an explanatory thing, as a descriptive thing, is it a surprise that the, that the Constitution's writtenness was important to the people who wrote it down? To me, it's not, to me, it's not very surprising. Um, it's an interesting thing to look into and research for sure. Um, but, you know, I would certainly have hypothesized that it had something to do with, you know, legitimizing this movement in all kinds of different, you know, in all kinds of ways. Well, also, I mean, another aspect of why the constitution takes on great importance um, when it's ratified is that, you know, there was this experience of, uh, you know, really having faith in legislatures, um, you know, after the revolution, but then uh, finding that those were not the ideal solution either. Right. So that, um, there's a sense in which uh, the natural alternative to um, the king, you know, is initially legislatures, um, as kind of came up in the English Revolution of the 17th century. Um, but then there's this realization that legislatures, too, can be overreaching. So you need something else 
to kind of uh, constrain legislatures, right? So um, that there are various questions about, well, you know, what's the alternative to this uh, form of government that they had from uh, Britain? And then, you know, the, the forms that they were seeking help from didn't seem quite the ideal salve that they had initially envisioned. I wonder, too, is there evidence in the anti-federalist uh, campaign against the Constitution um, that would help help us see that the framers were actually quite aware of the fact that the document uh, contained a bit of papering over of differences of opinion, that, that it was, it, that there you could say, well, even at that time, no, there's not a tension between writtenness and the fact that provisions can embrace ongoing contestation of meaning, um, because right then they were talking among themselves about the fact that, and maybe it was a complaint of anti-federalists, look, this thing hasn't been nailed down yet, right? Don't mm-hmm. do, don't ratify that because it's actually not good enough yet. Um, is there, it, do, it, are there arguments like that made by the anti-federalists? Because if there are, it seems like that would go uh, some way toward really confirming your view that uh, that it's perfectly consistent with the framers' views of their own project that the writtenness and the ongoing contestation of meaning within the words chosen are perfectly consistent with each other. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely. I don't. I don't know about the anti-federalists particularly, but you know, in terms of the members of the founding generation, there's a lot of awareness among various of the framers about uh, the diversity of meanings. Um, So that, you know, and I I would come back again to even um, the ratification uh, or or the uh, debates on the Constitution, um, where they're talking about the question of whether Congress needs to um, be able to define as well as punish felonies. Um, And then also um, in debates about the Seventh Amendment or uh, discussions of the Seventh Amendment, there's a question about what um, what it means, you know, what were cases at equity versus law um, and how those might differ in different um, areas. So there are definitely in specific instances, uh, some kinds of self-conscious narratives about um, about the differences among uh, interpretations of these particular terms. One thing I found I found interesting in that respect is looking at different manuals of justices or that are for justices of the peace in different um, in different states. So um, pre constitution, um, there's often a set of justice of the peace manuals with um, something about uh, English common law and local common law, um, where you have uh, particular kinds of rights described under the local common law and under English common law. And then um, post ratification of the Constitution, you get these documents where it's taking a constitutional provision uh, and saying, okay, this is the general constitutional provision. Here's the, uh, you know, South Carolina um, common law that would gloss this. Here's the English common law, you know, so that there's a sense of these different jurisdictions having different kinds of meanings that uh, might accompany different kinds of terms. And and that's viewed as not problematic. The the, right. the people who are using that manual that probably don't open it and think, oh my gosh, I just have to resign my job. This is all such a hash. 
Exactly, exactly. Right. It's it's laying out the differences with the understanding that those things will be used uh, in different contexts or they may be used to interpret in different contexts. Why be originalist at all? I mean, I guess that's the question we haven't gotten to yet that I'm that I'm still really wondering about is if I if I if I take your very powerful demonstration uh, in the Stanford paper in great detail about the fact that, you know, at the framing in the original, or I'm sure we could do the same thing in the in the 1860s with different common law rules. Mm -hmm. if, if I if I take if I take it for all it's worth, why isn't the right response to say, you know what, this originalism is just a bunch of bunk. It's it it, it <laughs> makes it makes no sense, right? It's it's not the better thing to do is not pretend that there is some um, constraining force. The better thing to do is to talk about what makes sense. Let me let me intervene and add to that question because it. it that follows on something I wanted to ask Bernie to do because we're running out of time and I wanted to see kind of common law originalism in action if we could. But if you take something like um, the natural born citizen clause for the, you know, as a restriction on the presidency, first of all, like, uh, we, you know, what what would the common law originalist opinion on that look like? Uh, maybe you don't have a fully formed opinion. So if, if not on that, maybe and you do on something else, just pick any other clause. But um, uh, but but what kinds of questions would you ask and what kinds of analysis would you do? And then do you favor that as an originalist matter or do you are you ambivalent about it for kind of the reasons that Joe just gave? Two very important questions. So why be an originalist at all? How to concretize um, this with respect to, say, something like the natural born citizen clause. Now, I'm not fully resolved on the natural born citizen part right now. So I'll, I'll instead convert it into a question about the 14th Amendment citizenship clause, which I have uh, a more committed answer to. So I actually think that there are certain of these common law principles that are fairly univocal. The surprising thing is that despite the variations among jurisdictions with respect to some of the principles, especially with regard to kind of criminal procedure, habeas, other things like that, um, that there are certain aspects that wind up being more unanimous. And so I would say that actually, in terms of citizenship, there's a lot more um, unanimity behind a birthright citizenship view or a just solely citizenship view um, than, than otherwise. Um, and so it, with respect to that, I think that it's worth really taking seriously the originalist uh, vantage point because of the um, authority or, or the lack of authority of um, undemocratically elected judges that we have to resort to um, the original meaning. My feeling is like if we're going to use the Constitution at all, we have to use it because it carries some meaning, um, even if those are multiple meanings. Um, and that uh, the duty of an interpreter in this context, as well as in other contexts, including literary contexts or dramatic contexts or whatever other context, is to um, figure out as best as possible the meaning of the text that's being interpreted. So the very fact that um, constitutional interpretation is an interpretive endeavor, to me, means that we have to be originalist in some respect, um, because otherwise we're not, we're, we're simply imposing meanings. Now, we could decide, actually, societally, we don't think that we should be adhering to the Constitution in this way anymore. Uh, we need to really allow judges to kind of interpret our basic 
uh, rights and basic uh, system of government in a flexible way and an evolving way. That would be fine, I think, um, if we decided to do that. But I think given that we do have this um, document and that we are a society that believes that the Constitution is important to us, that um, the the duty of judges is to have some interpretive function. Well, it's uh, in the, I mean, it sounds... A, just a little bit conclusory, though, because if the if the argument is that um, b- we have the document and so we must interpret it, and interpretation of meaning implies that the document has meaning, which means that there is a meaning in the document that we can extract, and therefore not to extract it is to violate some duty to interpret the document. That all sounds, in a way, you know, rather circular, doesn't it? A little bit. I mean, I was going to, I had this paper I was going to write a while back, which is now being folded into the, to the bigger thing that I'm working on. And I was, it, it was about this problem of, of, um, uh, of dead hand control and legislation that a lot of people have written on. And I was going to call it, they, the dead people, right? It's, it's a play on we, the people. Um, because if, if you're going to, um, cause there are many ways of using documents to um, uh, uh, um, in the present, right? So, you, you know, the, you go back, going back to the rules of a game, right? If we get the rules of Monopoly and Joe and I are playing Monopoly and our goal is to have a fun time playing and, and, and clearly we don't owe any duties to the authors of those instructions and if we want to depart from them, that's fine. But the rules give us a way to coordinate in a, uh, according to a plan um, that was designed to create the most fun for us now. And if in our judgment we want to depart from that and accept the consequences of not having quite the foresight that the people who wrote the instruction, then, you know, then fine. Uh, that's another way of looking at it. And uh, so part of the, um, and that's not the only way, I mean, par- part of this this piece was really trying to, to think about um, what are uh, the reasons why we allow law to bind us through time at all. And, mm-hmm. um, and and especially over long periods. And, and so the title was just meant to evoke, right, that that I just don't see hear any sensible theories that we owe duties to dead people, right? To dead framers in particular. It's not that that's clearly not it. And so the answer has to be that this is a coordination mechanism now, and it, it may be able to explain it in terms of transaction costs or information asymmetries and had all this uh, kind of in there. Um, but, but I don't think it, 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 to me, it's not so compelling to say that the very idea of having a document includes interpretation of that document and interpretation necessarily includes the extraction of meaning and that meaning is necessarily that intended by the authors or at least encompassed within what they did and therefore our duty is to interpret and extract that meaning you know what i mean maybe i'm not saying it right but um it does sound a bit circular to conclude from the fact that we accept the constitution as binding that we accept that um we um the, the 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 further fact that we accept that interpretations of it must necessarily be interpret interpretations of some kind of originalist intention and i'm not even saying i disagree i, I i'm not even saying that that i don't think original meaning is uh, i'm not even saying that i think original meaning is worthless cuz i cuz i don't think that i but i think it's more complicated yeah i mean i think that's a good point about the different uh kinds of documents that we have whether it's the rules for monopoly or you might imagine a play that you then decide to perform in different contexts or right, you might yeah. uh, cut various scenes if it's too long or uh, make a lot of modifications. So I, I would say that um, I would come back in response to two points. So one is this tradition of interpretation within the Anglo-American context that, um, in fact, 
even though the mode of interpretation was more of these uh, common law sources pre-Constitution, that um, interpretation actually has been the tradition of our uh, kind of constitutional understanding even before the uh, U.S. Constitution was ratified. So that, um, to me, it seems like a kind of longstanding practice that has uh, gained authority by its continued acceptation um, in the present. Um, And then, secondly, I do think that there is something about the democratic authority that is given to the Constitution, not simply by its ratification at the time of the founding, but rather by continued generations thought that this is the document that really um, forms the basis of the American polity. And that, you know, if you think about the role of the Constitution in the United States, it's so much more significant than in a lot of other countries. So that um, the fact that we accord the document this significance, um, I think, lends authority to the notion that it should be um, interpreted uh, or that it there, there's some kind of uh, reason to interpret it. And uh, yeah, th- those are further reasons that, that are of the kind that, you know, that I was, that I had in mind that, that you need something like that to account for, to, to account for, you know, basically why we owe duties to one another to treat at least some original intentions or meanings as authoritative. I mean, that that's, those are the further reasons we need, because it can't just be, that we owe duties to people who are long gone. Because mm-hmm. after all, it would be illegitimate. I think we would all recognize it would be illegitimate of us today to claim that authority over people 100 years from now. I think we right. would see it as both foolish and, um, and illegitimate. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and so those are the kinds of further reasons, yeah, that I... Uh, and uh, you can articulate them in terms of our duties to each other now. The, the, right. the kinds of stability, continuity, um, uh, the fact that there's a, a, a longstanding practice that has had benefits and c- seems to continue to have some benefits. Right. Uh, this is why, I guess, for me, the the sort of what I take to be Justice Breyer's approach in in things like active, as he describes it, in active liberty. Um, uh, what's the other one? Making our democracy work, or something like that. Um, or in the Noel Canning case, the 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 case about uh, recess appointments. You know, you you look at text, you look at history, you look at uh, settled practice among the branches. In that case, you you know, you look at all kinds of resources uh, because you're trying to think about what makes sense today, both in terms of these sources and in terms of the consequence of the conclusion that you reach about the sources and. Th- that to me doesn't privilege originalism, but it doesn't reject it either. Right. Um, yeah. It kind of embraces it in a much more open, and and I'm persuaded by his account in those two books that that when you open yourself up to more of those sources, that's actually more constraining than saying no. I want to only look at these two things. Right. Right. And that and that is actually less constraining. I mean, I think he's. I, I'm persuaded by his account of that. Well, I've got. One more question for Bernie. Cool. <laughs> now, um, so these books are, you've got two books coming out, right, Bernie? One of them is um, uh, Common Law Originalism, and the other is, go ahead and, go ahead and plug it. What's the other book? Oh, it's called um, Theaters of Pardoning, and it's uh, basically looking at how the pardon power is figured in 17th century English drama and political theory and the relation between pardoning and sovereignty in that context. So, in other words, you've totally sold out and are just trying to make a bunch of money. Definitely. Yeah. 
huge audience for that book, I'm sure. But I I just wanted to ask if you've like already started like planning a remodel. I mean, now that you've got the oral argument bump uh, for these books, have you planned to remodel your house? Have you bought an expensive car? Is there anything in particular you've done to kind of, once you got the call or email from Joe, did you? Yeah, because these sales are going to soar. I mean, I mean, you must have thought you've arrived. It must have been electric in in the Bernie Myler household. I, I've been looking at the Tesla dealership uh, down the block from me recently, and you know, kind of <laughs> sitting in some some cars, thinking about it. But yeah, I guess <laughs> you got to dream bigger than that. You got to you got to buy Tesla itself from Elon Musk. I mean, you you're going to have a lot of pocket change here. Did you, did you see today that Elon Musk? Or was it yesterday? Tweeted out a picture that saying that you know tomorrow they're going to reveal the D and something else. No, I didn't. Yeah. I, I have to. Wow. Hey, well, oh, well, so like apparently it's a new model of the Tesla, but it sounds like he's going to photograph body parts. <laughs> it, yeah, he got a, he got a lot of he got a lot of tweets back to him saying, "Please don't. Don't show me your don't, D." Yeah. And other people saying, "Yeah, go ahead, man, you know. Like, <laughs> reveal the D. You don't say reveal the D on Twitter, I think. It's a lesson from yeah, that. Truly. Yeah. yeah. Um uh so if but but since that's coming out that's something you should look into cuz you've got you know uh you've got the big oral argument bump and sky's <laughs> the limit sky is the limit Definitely <laughs> Well listen Bernie thank you so much uh for joining us and um I know this has been a sunny part of your day and it'll be difficult to get back to life there the drudgery of life there looking out of your window on the <laughs> campus of Stanford but uh, some somehow okay, you're going to manage talking to you and uh we hope to see both of you in sunny california sometime soon uh, anytime in fact if you if you if you name the time i will be there tomorrow um it, <laughs> uh yeah it's wonderful out there uh we, we you know i did we say at the beginning bernie and i were classmates is that what you said joe uh, I asked you that before we were on the air. So okay, yeah. So we should do a disclosure here because you know we're everything is above board here at oral argument. Of but course. um, but boy, I do remember fondly my time with uh, Bernie in class and Professor Franklin's tort class. Yes, um, it was our very first semester, and I uh, I remember thinking of Christian as this formidably intimidating intellect who would oh uh, come to class and know everything. Oh uh, boy, uh, instantaneously. So, uh, yes. Well, uh, it, you know, it's taken you a few years, but I think you've <laughs> you've finally come to terms with the fact that that is not so. It was so good to talk to you again, Bernie. Yeah, and, thanks and so hopefully much. Hopefully we can do it again soon. Wonderful. This was great. All right, bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.